Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This episode is the edited version of a live session from the Jaipur Literature Festival 2021. Brown Baby, Nikesh Shukla in conversation with Nish Kumar. Welcome to Brown Baby, uh, my interview with the author and my very good friend, uh, Nikesh Shukla. Nikesh, hello. Nikesh, hello. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I, I should just say, for the benefit, especially of people watching this uh, in India, uh, the United Kingdom uh, is uh, continuing on its quest to set a Guinness World Record for the longest lockdown in human history. Um, <laughs> so we're still in a full lockdown. So we're still all working from home. I understand in different parts of the world, you've done things like control the pandemic and <laughs> get your numbers down. But uh, in Britain, we've decided to just uh, let the damn thing run riot. We've <laughs> we've decided that as punishment for 200 years of us spreading disease around the world, we've decided to take a bit of it back for ourselves all of which is an explanation for why i so the barbers are shut which is basically what i'm trying to tell you and that is why i look like tom hanks in the final third of castaway um and my wilson today <laughs> is <laughs> the novelist nikesh Shukla. although i will say this nikesh you're looking remarkably well turned out for somebody who I know is also in the same lockdown as me, what's what's going on? What are you doing? Why is your why do you look so much neater than me? I hate to make make it hot for you, Nish, but I know how to use my clippers, whereas you, <laughs> it would appear, do not know how to use your clippers. No idea how to use clippers. No idea. Are you clipping your hair as well? No, no. This is just. It's just the longer it gets, the greyer, greyer it looks, and I think that just distracts from. The, the I don't general. know. I think it's giving you a sort of air of gravitas. Yeah, that's 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 what you want at a literature festival—an air of gravitas. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly needed in this talk, where I, as a comedian, carry no intellectual gravitas whatsoever, and rightly so. Uh, no one should ever confuse comedians with knowing anything about anything. Um, so before we. Um, get into the book uh, how are you i feel that uh, we should make some obligatory covid era small talk um how are you doing how are you handling it what's what's really strange uh, about answering this question to you knowing that people are watching is uh i speak to you every sunday yeah well i <laughs> hours <laughs> i didn't know if we were going to reveal that that early um i guess you the cat is out of the bag i i know everything about you i don't think that I don't, I don't think that there has been a day of lockdown where I've not corresponded with you in some way, whether it's a phone call, a video chat or a text message. Yeah. So, I mean, really, I'm asking you this for the benefit of the people watching. I'm, I, am, <laughs> I could answer this question on your behalf. I'm all right. I've, I've kind of got to that point where, you know, I mean, it's, it's got to be the same for you where, like, there are large swathes of our jobs that we can't do properly 
Yeah. And, you know, part of part of be, the job of being a writer is being out in the world. And yeah. um, my world just feels so small and sort of all pushed through this portal. And so I just, I feel okay. I feel, I put up, I put up some fence panels yesterday and today, and I feel uh, like if you ignore the one that is very, very wonky, I felt a sense of achievement. <laughs> how, how about you? Like, it must be a really hard time being a comedian, not being able to do pretty much 90% of your job. Yeah, it's definitely a strange thing. I mean, when you're coming through as a comedian, the one thing that they uh, older acts will always tell you is uh, always keep your live work going. Television is a mysterious and capricious beast. And you can never rely on the whims of television commissioners. So you have to constantly keep your live work going. And that's the thing that's going to feed you through your career and into old age. Right. So it yeah. is a bit weird when the one thing that's supposed to be a certainty is pulled out from underneath you. But like broadly, I'm absolutely fine. And in order to get us towards talking about the book, I mean, one of the sort of key underpinning themes of the book is how you talk to your children about difficult world events you know how you talk to your children about racism and sexism and the prejudices that may, they may grow up and face so just before we talk about that I just want to ask you because I'm really curious and asking lots of my friends who have young children about this how are you talking to your children about what's happening right now like how are you explaining to them why they're not going to school or why they're not able to see their grandparents we're bit you know we're being really honest with them about about yeah. it you know, they know that there is a virus they know that they shouldn't be they should be keeping their distance from people they know that they should be washing their hands they know that things are very changeable and you can kind of tell the the impact that it's having on their on their mental health but I'd much rather they just be prepared for it. But, you know, with the fact that they are being quite resilient when it comes to, like, flexibility, every time I make a mistake, like, it's a big mistake. So, like, my my kid's going to school on Mondays uh, because she has a key worker place on Mondays uh, because my partner's doing work. And last Monday was an inset day, and I took it got dressed we didn't we completely just completely forgotten it got dressed up took her to the school the school was completely shut and she was just like she just crumbled and oh, man. and you kind of realize that like the small bits of routine that she's able to have are the things that are really holding her together at the moment right um, but it's sort of i think it sort of feeds into like the thing the thing in the book which is like how do i have conversations with my kids about what is going on in the world but i sort of strip away my cynicism from it and i just try and explain the world as they experience it because as you were saying at the top like if i talk to them about how i really felt about coronavirus and the, the bungling of our government and the absolute catastrophe of ineptitude after ineptitude after ineptitude that you know has cost people's lives you know just this morning i found out about another death in our extended family and you know you you kind of think about the grief that so many people are going through where it's like a, a it's like a grief in stasis because they're not experiencing the physicality of, of that grief which i think is a really important part of the process and we're just sort of all crashing towards this mental health crisis like um 
I'm not telling her that. I'm just telling her that. Fuck you. <laughs> just wash your hands, right? Just please. <laughs> yeah. Is it about keeping things very small scale and very achievable? Like, please yeah. wash your hands rather than we are careening <laughs> towards a mental health crisis for a whole generation. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the days I wake up and I think, oh my God, this is just it for the rest of our lives. But you know, you know that panic that um, I can't remember who it is in the first Alien film has, where it's like, it's two more days of this game over, man. You know, <laughs> like you know that I sometimes wake up with that, just that doom filled panic in me. I try and keep that away from them. But yeah, sure. Uh, at the same time, I'm trying to keep them away from, you know, people because people have, people carry the disease. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, they've been really good about all that stuff. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that makes the book, because the book and the conversations in the book are so timely, it's interesting that even the circumstances through which it's now being released, I think in a weird way, make what you're talking about feel even more timely. Like, how do you engage in conversation with younger generations about big, scary things that are going on? But I want to put a pin in that and come back to it later on in the conversation because there's like a lot to talk about with this book but I want to sort of look at it through the prism of you as a writer and where you feel this book sits in your body of work because as a fan of your work and looking at it from an external perspective and reading particularly the work you've done in the last few years and I'm thinking you know not just of the activist side of your work but also things like the young adult books like run riot and the boxer are both incredibly readable novels but there's also a subtext within both of them about talking about serious issues in a form that's specifically aimed at young adults and yeah when i think about everything that you've written in the last few years it really feels like this book is the logical culmination of a lot of different strands of your career, but I'm aware that I'm viewing that as an external observer. And so for me, looking at it from an outsider's perspective, I'm looking at it going, oh, it really feels like Nikesh is building up to something, you know, in the way that as an outsider, if you look at like a band like Radiohead, you sit there and you go, well, okay, the bends leads to okay computer and then the reaction against that is kid A. But I'm also aware that when you're inside the process, it may not feel that organic at all. So where did the genesis of this book come from? And did you feel like this is something you've been building up towards writing for a couple of years? No, no, is the simple answer. I mean, I think there are yeah. key points in my career that where things have blown up in a, in a big way, uh, in a really unexpected way. Um, and... <clears throat> I think when I first started out with Coconut Limited in 2010, I, I, you know, I wanted to write comedic fiction. You know, my first two novels are like comedy satires. Yeah. And it was only just the year, years before I, um, I did, started putting together The Good Immigrant, um, of which you are of that parish, like obviously, um, I'd become a youth worker again. And doing all that youth work really put a fire in me that I just hadn't felt for a really long time, like doing localised grassroots youth work in Bristol and you know I you know I've just signed on to volunteer for to do a, a bit more youth work because I just felt like it was really lacking in my life since I stopped on that project and like doing that youth project 
it meant it made me think I want to do something that is going to be talking to young people of color in the UK about about race. So you know that's what the Good Immigrant became. Also, you know, in talking to the these young kids who I was working with um, about the stuff that they read, they felt like they wanted they just could never find books that talked about contemporary social issues that were relevant in the UK. Well in a UK context that were relevant to them they had to kind of farm that in from America and I thought well I could do, I could be doing that alongside some of the other authors and then Brown Baby happened completely by accident and but it felt like a really nice full stop on that 10 years of work where I'd been writing I guess about about you know social issues and um trying to put it in a in a fictional context or just sort of trying to use humor to talk about all of this stuff or trying to use genre to talk about all this stuff and so it's quite nice to kind of say say that that's a very complete body of work that's my like marvel cinematic universe phase one yeah. uh, complete and yeah. i can kind of move on to phase two now which is which is what i'm sort of thinking about at the moment so the publishers they sort of you were approached with the idea about doing a memoir, right? Um, it yeah. wasn't something that you had not had this kind of burning desire because again, I'm so interested in the gap between what's actually going on in the creative process and externally, because again, as a fan of your work, I could easily see how you could draw a line that neatly goes through all of this work and feels like, oh, this feels like part of a plan and a very organic piece of creative development because even the comedic novels coconut unlimited and meat space both have elements of them like anxiety about race uh, anxiety about how the internet is either or perhaps both helping and hindering the way that we communicate and relate to each other there's a lot of the same concerns in there but i'm really interested in how externally something can look really logical and organic but actually within the creative process it's almost chaos and this uh, like the idea of you doing a memoir just appeared almost out of nowhere right yeah I, I guess it's it's two things that one is like i'm probably only interested in like three things so, <laughs> yeah so, so that that uh, that helps and the other thing is like it it took it was quite a feat to get coconut unlimited published and to find the right editor who wanted to make it what it was and it just taught me that if I stuck to my guns I could write I should be writing whatever I want and so I've just been very lucky in that I've ultimately done what I won um and I've been just been lucky that people have wanted to publish it also the work's been good as well but um yeah. so after the good immigrant came out like i mean you'll remember you'll remember this time like i was sort of I, I had two young kids and i was going around the country like talking about racism for a living and like as you well know like talking about all of that stuff and then having that solitary journey home afterwards yeah it's like it's all it all really weighs on your shoulders and um and I was just thinking a lot about what kind of writer I wanted to be and how I didn't want to be in that space. I wanted to kind of go back to comedic fiction, but then you kind of go, well, this platform is important and um, you can do something with it. And so when I was asked to, if I wanted to write a column for the Observer magazine about parenting, I kind of lapped it up because I was like, yes, I can, I can do this. I can, I can, I can write about joyful things. Um, I can be the Tim Dowling, Brown Tim Dowling. Uh, <laughs> 
but um but the thing is like when you start writing about what it's like to raise a baby through the lens of a brown male like other things that tim dowling probably has not considered before kind of creep in and so when that column ended uh this editor approached me and she said is there a longer piece in this and she she pinpointed like three or four columns that dealt with how i talked to my kids about various issues and i was a bit like 38 who writes a memoir at 38 uh, like my my parenting journey is it hasn't been particularly special it's been quite ordinary actually and it, like you can probably carve out 800 words a week out of it but I don't know if there's a longer piece of work and she was like think about it and so I thought well that central question how how do I how do we raise our kids to be joyful in a world that's so far uh, so bleak I nearly swore there I, can't, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear in a world that's so bleak and I feel so sad and angry about it it's a kind of a compelling question it's something that like we we're all thinking about you know we're all thinking about how to move through this world and and so uh, so I thought I could do that but if I do it it has to be really honest it has to be the truth I'm not an expert but I'm not an expert on anything other than the truth of our life our our life as a family um and so i was like i I had to kind of then consider how am i going to make this truthful and you know in the tradition of people like Tanahasi coates and james baldwin and ali wong and david chariandra i thought if i just direct you know in the same way that i do in the essay in the good immigrant if i just address my daughters then i'm addressing the readers directly as well i'm addressing them as as though they're my kids and it'll force me to be honest. And so the book ended up being about all of the stuff that kind of keeps me up and all the stuff that terrifies me and how on earth I can, how on earth I'd managed to keep my kids, keep, keep myself going enough to keep my kids going, even <laughs> though all of the stuff is like turning me into a raging insomniac. Yeah. And I mean, because the book is delivered, it makes it very readable and very compelling because the book is delivered in that way, in the form of you answering questions about, how to raise girls as a man how to raise children being aware of racism but the whole thing is addressed to the daughters it's it makes the thing very it gives the thing a real energy and also there's there is a lot of comedy in there and there is a lot you know and it's it's about raising children so there is you know a lot of very naturally very funny incidents that come into it so i don't want people to leave the the session with the sense that it's like it's like a dark or a heavy book. And also yeah. it's full of references to Spider-Man, which yeah. anyone who knows anything about your work knows it's the, or anyone who's even looking at the Zoom window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just there. I mean, yeah, this, this is the thing, like it had to be funny and it had to be hopeful. Like that's, because that's my bag. I, I see myself as a hopeful writer, but also like writing about all of this stuff. Um, I think you can, It'll be interesting to hear what you think about this pet theory that I have. It, but I think you can drive to a deeper sincerity if you push towards a joke. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's I, I absolutely I absolutely agree with that. And I absolutely think that there's examples of there's like useful examples where a joke distills quite a complicated idea and yeah. can make it more comprehensible to people. Um but there, and then there is this whole other, there's a whole other side to the book. I don't think I've ever told you about this, but my pet theory about this book um, is actually cribbed from, and I guess as the conversation progresses, people will realise that you and I are, I don't want to be reductive about our personalities, but sort of the same guy. Like, <laughs> like you know, sure, 
we all contain multitudes <laughs> and no two snowflakes are alike. But realistically, you and the Venn diagram of your and my life is like slightly, <laughs> it's too slightly, it's basically kids and glasses. And that's really the two key separation points, right? But that's just, that's just time. <laughs> <laughs> you're, just, you're, just, uh, you're just like at least 10 years away from kids and glasses. Yeah, it's funny though, because you are uh, a few years older than me, and yet somehow I look like you sent back from the future to warn yourself about some grave injustices about the performing. But um, I, so one of the things that people will find is the ceaseless allusions to various elements of popular culture that are already coming up. That is something that you and I absolutely have in common. But my pet theory about this book is the same as James Cameron's theory about Terminator <laughs> 2. It really is. Because in Terminator 2, James Cameron said that the secret about that movie is that there are three Terminators in the film. Um, there's Arnold Schwarzenegger, Robert Patrick, and Linda Hamilton, who he considers to be the third Terminator. And I can't believe I'm using this as an analogy to enter into what I imagine is going to be the most serious bit of this entire conversation. But here we are. I feel <laughs> there are three brown babies in this book, right? There's your two children and yourself. Because uh, the sort of the kind of most important figure in this book, in some ways, is your mother, and there's so much about your upbringing that's referenced in the book and your mother's death. And I always feel that you're the sort of third brown baby in the book. And was there a specific idea that you wanted to incorporate some of that stuff into the book, or is it the case that when you're talking about raising your children, you can't help but reflect on how you were raised and try and glean some lessons from that? Yeah, I mean, before we answer that, I have to just say that my favourite uh, quote from Terminator 2 is that it, it is in your nature to destroy yourselves, which I believe is the, the name <laughs> of a, a double comedy album coming out by, by your good self. <laughs> Plug. Yeah. Um, so when I when I like the grief thing had kind of come up in those columns and that 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 grief element had resonated with a lot of readers yeah um, but I don't think I don't think that I knew until I was sitting down to write it that actually a, a large part of how I view my role as a parent is seen through the prism of myself as a child and um, because I didn't have my mum there to kind of get advice from, but in the same way that she'd sort of prepared me for being a parent, I just didn't have the external validation from her that I would have wanted. In the same way that like, my kids don't ever need to read this book because if I raise them in the way that I'm raising them, they'll know all of this stuff. And that's kind of like the thing, the, the sort of the fracture of time that I wanted to, to, to try and achieve. With, with writing it and um yeah a, a lot of it is about me kind of reconciling my childhood and how I how I look back on that childhood and how I sort of yearned for a different life because I didn't understand my parents and I you know my my mum and I didn't really understand each other but we had that intensely fierce love that um that kind of propelled us through some really difficult times 
but I don't, I don't think I sat down to write a grief thing. It just sort of emerged that through writing it, I realised that if I was going to write about my mum being my mum, I'd never really dealt with her desk, death. Like she died the week before my first novel came out. And at the time I, I thought, well, I, it, was, it was a shock and I was, I was in shock. And, and I decided that, the easier thing to do than deal than deal with my mum's death would, would have was to just promote my book and go and do the book events and all I was doing was just pushing it down and down and down until it kind of erupted when I had a kid and suddenly I realized that I'd never really dealt with this really big thing in my life and um, so writing it I kind of had to in order to write my way through my mum's death I had to kind of bring her back to life have her die and me grief for her on the page almost in real time properly for the first time which is a really hard was a really hard thing to do like I always try and put myself on the page as much as I can whether whether you can see it or not like there's always an element of my truth on that page but this one it really counted yeah and I mean there's two sections in it that are the specific sections about your mother that certainly reading it for me had such a kind of they, they were they were absolute gut punches um and like the last conversation you have with her which is an argument was it, it, it's kind of heart stopping and then the the kind of uplift that comes after that where you bring her back to life by cooking some of her recipes i i, I mean at reading it it's extraordinary the the beauty of the writing the sort of emotional force of it and you know for somebody who is like yourself kind of second generation immigrant it 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 hit home so intensely and was such a kind of important part about why I love this book but how difficult is that to write because at some point these things that are I mean the, you know this this book has this blood on the page to borrow I think it's Jesse Armstrong talking about succession talks about there being blood on the page and there is absolutely blood on the page and pieces of yourself on the page and do you have to find yourself setting limits for things that you can and can't talk about because at some point this incredibly personal thing you are going to have to talk about with somebody who's like having a mundane conversation about word count and how do you how do you set limits for yourself on things that you aren't going to write about or do you just kind of let everything explode out and then hope that you can winnow it down in a way that you're comfortable with yeah so <clears throat> I, I mean it's the same way as like as i'm sure you you build a show that like there will be things that there will be things that are kind of concurrent with the line of thinking that you're pursuing but they don't thematically work so you they kind of lose stories and and jokes and and asides along the way um in all but I, you know that first draft I, I kind of had to set myself no boundaries and then yeah in in editing it work out what was going to go on the page and what was going to you know stay stay in stay here stay in stay in my heart and um you know there's there's definitely stuff that got cut because it just had, didn't thematically work with what I was trying to do. But what's interesting about having to talk about it is, 
I feel I feel like a sense of calm at the moment when when talking about my mum's death. It's almost like this was the thing that I needed to do to work my way through it, which is really, really important. What's weird is when people um when people sort of assume a familiarity that's points to stuff that's not on the page. Yeah. And like when you when you lay yourself open in this way people are obviously going to see parts of their life in it and they're going to want to talk to you about it and that you know that's great that you've made this connection but then you kind of then go and do interviews and where I've written about how promoting a book like The Good Immigrant sent me into such a mental health crisis that I um, I ended up developing a problematic relationship with food and I write quite openly about that mostly because I wanted to like talk about what it is to be like I wanted to talk about some of the the vulnerabilities that like that just aren't talked about when it comes to masculinity and and being a man and stuff but people are like going so what's it like having an eating disorder and you're like hold on a second like nosing me like I haven't even given my given it that language it's it's that stuff like that I find really strange um but then I've put it on the page. I spoke to um, my friend Mira Jacob, who's a, who's an amazing writer, um, and she wrote a book called Good Talk, which is a graphic memoir. And she kind of phoned me up after we did an event. And she was like, because she'd written a memoir that would develop talking about similar stuff, and she was like, "Do you want to chat?" And we had a, <laughs> because like going from writing fiction to writing memoir is quite a big jump because you can't hide behind the whole thing that it's fiction. And, and one of the things that she said to me was like, you kind of have to establish your boundaries about what you will and won't talk about and um, just be really, really clear that, you know, a memoir isn't, it isn't everything. It, yeah. is, it is the thematic journey that you're taking people on, using your life to kind of put skin on the bones of, put, well, this is a crap metaphor, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) This is why writers have second drafts. This is fine. It makes total sense to me. Um, And uh, briefly, we're sort of coming towards a point at which I think we're gonna we're going into the dreaded Q and A section. Um, So get your questions ready. Um, I think there's a way for you to submit questions. I don't have the technical know-how to understand how you would possibly do that. but I also want to ask you about the specific term woke feminist dad, because in reading lots of the stuff about this book, I, I'm slightly mystified. Even a lot of the reviews are very effusive in their praise, but I'm really interested in the idea that people have been reprinting that phrase as though you use it very like casually and very descriptively how important was it for you and i think this is one of my favorite things about the book is to actually interrogate how we use words that you and i use as anxious liberals who spend too much time online using phrases like woke feminist dad like it it, how important was it for you in the book to interrogate the individual uses of those words and the way that we kind of casually throw them around because that's one of my favorite things in the book yeah, it's weird because I, I don't think I use that. I don't think I describe myself as that. I wouldn't even describe myself <laughs> in life, you know. <laughs> yeah. I th- 
you know, it's it's funny because the the, the it's 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 such a funny way of like attributing like parameters to something where I, that I'm actively trying to destroy those parameters because <laughs> you know part of the whole thing is like for me to go right this is where I, I feel vulnerable about stuff this is where I feel fallible about stuff this is where I, I have no idea what I'm talking about and these are the questions that I have to navigate when it comes to my kid I don't have any answers I don't ascribe myself to any particular thing but here are the things that I'm kind of thinking about and if I can show that I've got stuff wrong and I'm still kind of forming how I think about stuff then maybe other people will go well actually this is a discussion worth having and it's an emergent discussion it's not a discussion where you necessarily have to land somewhere like I don't yeah like woke feminist dad I don't even know what that means like I'm raising my kid to be to be proud of my kids to be proud of who they are before the world puts um certain things on them and I know that as um as someone who does anti-racism work for a living whether like voluntarily or like through writing and stuff um there is a way that I need to be conscious of when I'm talking to my kids about race as a male I have to be conscious of um how I'm raising my daughters in the same way that I think men should be thinking about how we raise our sons as well and also like at the same time the world's about to like fall over from climate catastrophe we've all seen greenland on amazon prime like we know that like something bad's about to happen and so there is like that whole existential crisis at the heart of it as well so yeah i i just i don't know what use those words are especially like at the moment where you know woke the word woke has been kind of co-opted by you know, right-wing columnists to describe people who disagree with them on the left. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, it's been so stripped of its origins that, you know, you've got people, um, you know, those same columnists suggesting that its origins are no longer relevant because it's now a movement that's sort of beyond that. And you just think, well, who is responsible for that? <laughs> it wasn't, it was, you know, so few people describe themselves as, woke yeah like it because of the kind of the weird thing that's happened to that word it's very strange. yeah i that was a personal bugbear of mine because it's a term that you use almost like satirically in the book and then in writing about it people have just used it like completely just taken it at face value and <laughs> not really thought about why you might be using the term so i basically just wanted to <laughs> give you the floor <laughs> to talk about why that's absolute nonsense um we've got some questions uh some very exciting questions um luna was asking if you could give us a reading from brown baby but i feel like that might be a nice way to end the whole session um so let's hold fire on that um trisitha asks question for you both do you ever overplay your indianness in your writing or comedy respectively if yes why <laughs> Um, I, I don't know if I overplay it. I mean, I, I feel like that is probably a criticism, an external criticism yeah. of my work is that <laughs> I overplay it. I, you know, it, it's just how I how I move through the world, and so I, I guess it's the lens through which I cast my eye on the world when I'm sort of 
thinking about how to write about it. Yeah. Well, I definitely think you and I think quite carefully about how you, I mean, I made a decision quite early on to not adopt an Indian accent in on stage at any point because that feels dangerously like you're going down a road to what that ends up in Peter Sellers with boot polish on his face in the party. <laughs> you don't want to get laughs for the wrong reasons. Um, yeah, especially... I, I made fun of my mum and dad's accents in my first novel. And I regret that. Yeah. Like, years later, what was funny for me 10 years ago is I'm so vastly removed from it now that I worry about it. Um, I mean, listen, I'm delighted that there's no record of most of the first five years that I was doing comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Truly a perfect crime. Um, Trishitha has asked, when you write, is your first motivation to entertain the reader or educate them about the social issues you focus on? Do you think literature is always meant to serve a purpose? God, these are big questions to these are huge to, questions to go to when you got five minutes to go um especially when it pops up on a zoom chat window which you're normally used to seeing things like can you turn your camera on <laughs> um i i don't know if my my primary goal is to entertain um readers or to discuss so social issues i think for me writing is just the way i communicate with the world you know often it's me asking big questions of the world or big questions of myself and then using the writing to kind of move through those questions i, I don't you know that i think there are smarter right smarter writers who um see literature as um a way of as as a way of well, I don't know what they see, <laughs> um, but but for me, it, it's 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 a for, for me. Uh, people talk so much about timelessness in literature, but I just I like to think of the books that I do as timestamps, and those timestamps just be really really present in the moment that they're trying to to describe. I, you know, I I write I write about social issues because I think they're so prevalent in the questions that I have about the world. Um, but I don't know if my what I would like to do is to go back to writing funny stuff that is just meant to entertain people. But at the same time, like funny stuff can still have that line of inquiry that I think is in incredibly important. Um, Fahima has asked, have you ever felt stepping back from since stepping back from completing this work was there any point that you were concerned of judgmental eyes on work that was so personal to you i think that's a really good question i think the idea of like when you've written something that's putting so much of yourself out there does it play on your mind that this is going to be written about discussed critiques are going to be written of it oh yeah and i've read i've read reviews and and things where that point out things that you know, I, I may not have nailed or, um, you know, like I read one review from someone who is an incredibly humorless person, like <laughs> finding fault with the comedy in the book. But uh, I'm, you know, in that way that, you know, you always tell other writers, you always tell, tell everyone, don't read the reviews, but you kind of, kind of end up 
<laughs> you do read them against your better judgment. And I think part of the reason I am reading them is because it is so personal and I just want to know that the thing, I just want constant reminder that it was worth putting out into the world. But as, as I know with The Good Immigrant, like the thing that I realised after a while is that actually the person who reads your book and never tweets you about it, but it crystallises something for them in their, in their own life and they go forth into the world feeling a bit more empowered. That's the person that you need to aim for in a perfect world, but at 1am when I am self-loathing and I need to beat myself up, I will read those one-star Goodreads reviews because I need to find someone external to tell me the things that I already think about myself. <laughs> I really enjoy your ability to answer questions in both the healthiest and also least healthy but most realistic way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure version of Nico Shukla's life. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you just—it's so hard to—it's so hard to avoid it. People—it's so hard to switch off from it. It's so—I—I am genuinely impressed and amazed by anybody that has a capacity to put something out in the world and then not read because it's so easy as well. Yeah, people tag you in to the good ones and the bad ones and the lackluster ones and the mediocre ones. <laughs> they don't care. And what's worse is like <laughs> they will tag you into someone else's tweet about it and you're like why are you tagging me in now i've read it and i hate myself thanks <laughs> um we've got okay. two minutes to go to the end of the session um is there a would you be interested in doing a little reading from the book mr shucks yeah just right. just to round us off with it i'm sorry that we didn't get to everybody's questions um there were an amount that surprised me i'll be honest with you also, I'd like to congratulate everyone on actually asking questions. Uh, Nikesh and I have done a couple of these and very often people just say a statement and then at the end go, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> All right, I'll read, not a question. I'll read the first bit of the, the book. Great. I never considered becoming a parent myself until my mum died. I'd like to think there was a moment when the switch flicked on or the force field came down or the upgrade happened between the hours of 1am and 4am plugged into a power source wi-fi switched on there was nothing like that nothing dramatic happened there was no tearful staring out over a field of bluebells no proustian cake chewing revelation and no need to cement my legacy you didn't appear to me in a dream i didn't read a saccharine poem about inheritance i didn't hold a friend's baby and suddenly have the final chorus of barry manilow's looks like we made it erupt in my head you just arrived one minute your mum and I were getting drunk at Christmas and there you were, in my arms, asleep. Your clenched fists covering your face much like they did on the ultrasound. Your nails were long, your eyes were closed. You looked just like her, just like my mum. Maybe it was a trick of my imagination or some sort of sleep-filled adrenaline-fueled tether to bring you into the family. Maybe you just sort of looked like mum in the way babies and old people are indistinguishably vole-like in certain lights. I tried to capture it on my phone, but you know how phones capture, photographs capture moments, never the narratives that prescribe them. Some photographs lack intent, others capture fragments, and only you can zero in on the history of that moment. Everyone else just sees the vole baby with her claws over her face. Thank you very much, Nikesh. Brown Baby is available wherever you get books now. And thanks very much uh, to everybody who uh, was watching and listening and sent in questions. And Nish Kumar has a double comedy album dropping out in three weeks time. Yeah.
I don't actually know how this is going to end. I assume that at some point the Zoom call will hang up on us. But I'm excited that we've managed to get through this with me exhibiting basic professionalism. And then it's ended <laughs> in uh, disarray. Thanks, Dish. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please subscribe or follow to this show wherever you're listening to this.